Today, we're continuing in our series on Joshua. And I want to tell you that we made, a, we made a call, a judgment call this week, that we're going to wrap up this study in Joshua next Sunday. Uh, so today and next Sunday is going to be the end of the Joshua series. And I wanted to give you a couple of reasons why as we dig into Joshua 10. One is that from, from Joshua 10 on, basically, in the book of Joshua, deals with kind of one thing, and that is Israel doing exactly what the previous nine chapters have said they were going to do, that they were going to sweep through the promised land, that they were going to uh, engage in a conquest where they were going to take the promised land, the Lord was going to lead them and oversee that and divide up the 12 tribes into their allotted territories. And that's really the bulk of the rest of the book of Joshua is that actually happening. So it's kind of repetitious in that part of the story. It's, it's not that we don't value the second half of Joshua, it's just that that's what the second half of Joshua is, is what we've been talking about for nine weeks or so. The other reason we're gonna put a pin in it is because uh, two Sundays from now uh, begins the season of Advent, and uh, I don't know if we've done Advent here, uh, if we've observed the liturgical season of Advent as a church. I hope that doesn't scare anybody. Um, what, what Advent is, uh, is a Latin word that means coming to, and it's a time for us as a church to anticipate our celebration of Emmanuel, God with us, Christ coming to earth in the form of a baby, and also to anticipate his return. And so we're gonna do a sermon series that's gonna focus on uh, the majesty and the greatness of Christ. Uh, and that's how we're gonna finish out the year through the Christmas season. So we're really looking forward um, to that. So two more weeks. If you have your Bibles, we're gonna be in Joshua 10 today. And I have to tell you by way of just confession that um, the Lord has been working in my own heart in this message in ways that um, uh, I'm just, I'm, I'm excited about where we're going this morning and a little nervous, uh, to be honest, um, because there's some things that, uh, you know, there are Sundays when I feel like, just being honest, when I feel like, yes, this text applies to me, but really I want to preach it to you. Today is one of those days where I don't feel like I have that kind of wiggle room in my heart before the Lord that, that he's this is just right in the middle of where I am. Um, so I'm excited about that, but, uh, and I believe that, that the Lord means to say powerful things to my own heart today. Um, anyway, so it may be a little bit of an adventure as we go, <laughs> but uh, let's remember where we are, a little context, and then we'll dig into the meat of it. Um, chapter 10 finds Israel poised to now continue the conquest of the land of Canaan, first to go south and then to go north, and to take all these cities and territories that the Lord has promised to them, but not just to them that he promised to give to Abraham. It's an epic story that they're right in the middle of. And the nations around them, one of the things we've seen in the book of Joshua is the nations around them have said, We're, you know, our hearts melted in fear because the reputation of your God has preceded you and we've known that you were coming. And we've been terrified of the stories we've heard of the power of God working. And so what's happened is all these nations have decided we're going to band together and make one big army to try to go against Israel. But remember last week, Gibeon was the exception. Gibeon was the one nation that looked at the situation that they were in and said, even that, even that is not going to be enough. And so they tricked Israel into making a treaty with them. They pretended that they'd come from a long way and they'd ask for 
Remember we talked about that, they asked for you know, a, a, a treaty, and, and what the treaty was was called a vassal treaty. And what that means is this. It means that there's a weaker party and a stronger party in this treaty. And the weaker party comes and promises service, and in return, the stronger party promises protection. That's the arrangement. So Gibeon said, we are your servants, and Israel said, then we will protect you. We will receive your service, and we won't let anything bad happen to you. Lucky for Gibeon, because when all these other nations were gathering together to go, against, to, go, to, Israel, go, go to war against Israel, they decided, you know what, hold everything. Let's go to war against Gibeon, uh, because they defected. We needed them. And they left, and so they planned to go to war against Gibeon. And that's where we find the story in Joshua 10, is the nations are gathering to make war on Gibeon, and Israel now is having to say, all right, then we have to do battle to protect Gibeon, who tricked us, because we made a treaty with them to be their protectors. And so that's what's happening. So I want to read Joshua 10, 6 through 14, and then dig into a part of it. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp of Gilgal, saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. And the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Horon and struck them as far as Azekah and Makeda. And as they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Beth Horon, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ajolon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is, not, is this not written in the book of Jashar? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and didn't hurry to set for about a whole day. There's been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man for the Lord fought for Israel. Pray with me. Father, this is a hard book to study because there's a lot of death and there's a lot of war and there's a lot of things that are so hard for us to reconcile in our minds Lord we know that that this is your word that you're sovereign that you give this to us that we might understand you better Lord I pray that you would help us to see the epic nature of the story that is unfolding here and your work in this world, Lord, would you strengthen our hearts today uh, when we are afraid, when we're overwhelmed. Um, Lord, would you meet us in this time? It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Amen. This is an epic story 
in the book of Joshua. It's been unfolding for a long time that they're here at this place now engaged in these battles and that God is with them is something that the Lord has been saying would come for well over 500 years at this point. He started saying this to Abraham. And I, I resonate with epic stories, do you? These stories that you just, you, you hear them and you think, okay, this story is reaching further than what I see. And the stakes are just so much higher than I imagine them to be. I think that we resonate with these kinds of stories, these epic stories, because there's something about our hearts that knows this is, the, this is a true story, that the life that I live right now is epic in nature. I see a part of it. I see a little bit of the stakes of my life, but there's more going on. There's more happening. There's more unfolding. You remember, maybe some of you, when the warden pulled the Raquel Welch poster off of Andy Dufresne's prison cell wall in the Shawshank Redemption. It was a movie in the 90s. It was kind of popular. <laughs> I do. I remember that moment and, and what followed and just this overwhelming sense of, oh my, you know? I had no idea what was unfolding. Do you remember, nerds, when Aragorn was confronting the dead men at Dunharrow? Remember that? And they said, the dead do not suffer the living to pass. And he said, you will suffer me. And then all the green ghosts came and fought at the end of the return of the king. Remember that? That epic moment. Or when Neo realized he was the one and he stopped the bullets with his hand and he flexed in the walls, flexed with him. Do you remember that? Or Darth Vader throwing the emperor down the big hole. That we, we, we resonate with these epic stories. By the way, that was a hard thing to do, what I just did right there. Do you know why? I mean, when was the most recent story that I even, movie that I even mentioned? Like early 2000s? What's going on? There's like, there's <laughs> not much good happening right now. Anyway. I think the reason epics resonate is because we know that life is epic, that there's more happening. C.S. Lewis said this. He said, one can hardly say anything either good enough or bad enough about life. He also said, you've never met a mere mortal. And those quotes wreck me. Especially when when I believe it. When I believe that the story that I'm in is not mine. Perhaps the saddest thing that can happen to a person is for them to come to believe that their story began the day that they were born or the day that they succeeded or the day that they came into wealth and will end the day that they die. That's sad. That is a sad, sad story. And if that's the story of your life right now, as far as you see it, I want you to know that you have my pity because that's tragic. There's one film that for me stands out as the most anti-epic movie of all time and it's brilliant. You know what it is? Groundhog Day. <laughs> have you ever seen this, Bill Murray? He should have got an Oscar for this thing. 
Groundhog Day, he's a newscaster. He has to go to Puxatawney, Pennsylvania to you know, cover uh, the, the, the fair where the groundhog comes out and sees his shadow or whatnot. And, and, he, and he's hating life and he doesn't like this assignment. And the next day he wakes up and realizes it's Groundhog Day again. It just keeps happening over and over and over and over and over. In the story of Joshua, the reason I'm telling you this is because we see a little bit of a Groundhog Day phenomenon happening in the lives of the people of Israel. And that is that they keep waking up to new challenges and new battles, and they keep responding in very similar ways with fear, not sure what's going to happen. And they pray, and the Lord responds to them, but the answer that he gives them is the same that he's been giving them over and over and over. That his epic story that he's been telling through them is, is not changing every morning that they wake up, that it's the same, but for them, they keep coming back to this place where they're not sure if the terms are the same or if they're different or what or where they stand. And so they go before the Lord And the Lord says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I've given them into your hands. And he keeps saying this. And he keeps saying this. When you look at verse 8 of the text that we read, there's this statement that the Lord makes. He says, I have given them into your hands. Don't fear them. And that's a past tense thing that the Lord is saying. It's It's done. This story is written. The story is told. It's unfolding for you, but for me, it's not unfolding. I know what's going to happen. Nothing is going to deviate from my plan. I have given them into your hand, and not just them, but everything that I've promised you about this land, I've given you already. It's written. And so there's this epic nature of this, and we talked about this last week. We talked about how we need to be a people who are people of the word. Because what is the Lord telling Joshua and Israel whenever they come to a new battle? Is he telling them something new? He's not. He's telling them what he's told them over and over, what's been written in his words. There's a commentator named Ralph Davis who said this, this is what God's people usually need. Not new truth, but old truth freshly applied to their current need. And that's what scripture is. This is old truth applied to current needs. And God has spoken to us by his word. And what we see him do in this text is astounding because they can't see, Lord, how are you going to continue this on? And the Lord says, don't be afraid. I've given them into your hand. And then how does he do it? Well, this miracle happens. And the text is very clear that the Lord contends for the people of Israel. And it's awesome in the literal sense, awesome. Not awesome in the 1984 sense, but awesome in the terrible sense. Did you know in the Trinity hymnal, which is this hymnal full of hymns that reform people like, there's a hymn called God the All-Terrible. Do you know that? There is. It's old language. But what are they talking about? They're talking about the strength and the power and the fearsomeness and the might and the awesomeness of God. That the people in the Old Testament, when they would encounter the Lord, how would they respond? They'd be afraid. 
They cower in fear. The Lord, because he's holy, he's mighty, he's, he's, he's powerful, but there's something awesome that happens here. Imagine that you're in the army of Israel and you're fighting this battle and you need God to contend for you and the way he contends for you is as our text says, he, he makes the sun stand still in the sky and then sends down this hailstorm that decimates your enemies. Are you not at least a little unnerved by what your advocate is doing to prevail. That's a fearsome, fearsome place to be. The sun stands still. I want us to just stay with this for a second because I want us to maybe just entertain what we might be talking about here because there's not many options What does it mean that the sun stood still in the sky that Joshua said, sun, stand still. Moon, don't move. And the Lord said, all right. Here's some options. It's a poetic flourish that the people were just energized. They worked faster. It seemed like the day lasted longer. Gosh, they got a lot more done. But but then we have a problem in verse 14 that says, yeah, but there hasn't been another day ever like this which also cuts off at the knees the idea that maybe this is uh, just speaking of relief from desert heat, you know, that, that what Joshua was really praying for is, Lord, if you could just not let it get so hot, we could really fight better today. But surely there's been cool days in the summer before. Another option is that this is, uh, this is an exaggerated atmospheric event similar to the Northern Lights where God, you know, does something atmospherically that sort of creates an ambient light for them to be able to see. Incidentally, commentators disagree. I just think this is fascinating. They, they say, you know, it could be that the Lord made it, made it daylight longer, but you could also take it to mean that the Lord made it dark longer because they, the text says that they, they ran in the middle of the night to do battle, and, the Lord's, and Joshua said, sun stand still. Maybe what he's saying is, Lord, prolong the darkness so that we have the element of surprise. Who knows? But these are our options, right? If it is light, then maybe it's a northern lights kind of thing. Maybe it's the more obvious sounding one that the Lord slowed the earth's rotation. I'm going somewhere with all this, by the way. It's interesting, isn't it? Maybe he slowed the rotation of the earth. Or, I hesitate to say it, maybe we're talking about a form of time travel. You can laugh at that, but is it not a kind of time travel to say maybe they moved and acted faster than the actual day that was unfolding for them. Is that not a way of moving through time at a different rate than time itself is elapsing? Nerds unite. And then lastly, and this is my favorite one of the possibilities, is maybe what the Lord did is he took the earth and he turned it on its axis so that what was happening in the Middle East was similar to the day that you would find maybe in northern Alaska or Sweden. And it just was light even as the earth was turning because the Lord just pivoted it on its axis. Do I sound like a fool to you proposing these things? I don't know what else it could be. I'm sure there are other equally fantastic 
ideas. The text tells us God's the one doing this. And I have to confess to you, it's hard for me to accept that this was a longer day than any other day. And yet at the same time, how can I say that if I believe that the one who's doing this is the one who made that earth? Is the one who not just made it, but made it out of nothing, that spoken it was. Is the contradiction with God at this point, or is it with me? That I don't believe that the God who formed man out of the dust of the earth and separated the heavens could do what Joshua is asking. It's an important question, brothers and sisters. Do you know why? Because it's easier for us, I contend, to trust God to create the earth out of nothing than it is to trust him to be faithful to me in the midst of my own circumstances right now. It's easier for me to accept that the second person of the Trinity would come in the flesh and live a life that I couldn't live, die a sinner's death in my place, rise from the grave on Easter morning, than it is for me to believe that he is sovereign when my furnace breaks. What is the heaviest thing weighing on your heart right now? Is it harder for you to believe that God can meet you in that than it is for you to believe that he spoke and there was and it was good? When God tells his people in the Old Testament, I'm going to give you this land. He never changes that story. He gives them that land. He parts seas. He sends manna from heaven. He makes the sun stand still in the sky somehow. All these things he does. But what he doesn't do is change his promise. He doesn't do that. So what is it in me? And what is it in you that wakes up every morning like it's Groundhog Day and we're saying, I wonder if the terms are different. I wonder if yesterday he was faithful, but today he's not. I want to just close with a personal, a little bit of a delicate story. Um, when, when my son was uh, two and a half years old, uh, I tell stories about him a lot. I'm proud of him. Um, we lived in a house in St. Louis, and his bedroom doorway was right across the hall from our bedroom doorway. And we'd put a kitty gate up, and one of the ways that he would wake us up every morning was he would, very methodically, he would go to his toy box and he would gather five smooth toys. And he would set them at the gate, and he would throw them at our door. <laughs> and so we'd just hear this thunk and then another thunk and we'd open the door and he'd be standing there at the gate and he would say, hi, little kid, you know, little kid, doesn't, doesn't really, really talk. And one morning he doesn't. 
he's, he, we're wondering, wow, he's, he's, in his, he's not getting up. And so I peek in, and I see that he's still in his bed. You know, he's about a half hour later than he normally gets up. And so I kind of go over, and I stick my head in. And as soon as I stick my head in his room, I know what's happened. And that is, to put it discreetly, um, he had an accident, and I could tell. But here's what I see. He's under his blankets, and he's looking at me. And he says from under his blankets, hi. And I'm standing there looking at him, and my heart is just breaking. Why? Because... Because my two-year-old knows shame to the point that it immobilizes him from engaging with me. To the point that in his little two-year-old way, he doesn't know if the terms are different now. He's nervous. And my heart is just breaking over this because, one, to my knowledge, we had never, as parents, shamed him. We'd never told him, you're a bad, bad boy. It's two. And yet, I was painfully aware that he lives in a broken and fallen world to the extent that as a two-year-old, he even understands that a little bit. And so... I tell you that story because I'm just like him. Some days I wake up and I just think, surely today the terms are different. Surely I don't know where I stand with my father who has told me nothing but the same thing over and over and over. And yet, in your shame and in mine, we wake up to realities where we say, yes, but this might change that. It doesn't. His mercies are new every morning. He is faithful to all generations. He will never leave you or forsake you. carved into the palm of his hand, my name. You're more loved than you know. God is more faithful than you imagine. His faithfulness is more epic than your mind can conceive. You're in a story that he's telling. There's redemption for you in your shame and your brokenness accomplished already that the one who is leading the people of Israel to this promised land is just a foreshadowing of the eternal home and glory that he has for his people whose faith is in his son who did this incredible thing who lived in my place and died the death that I deserve to die.
He is faithful. He's faithful. And there's nothing that God won't do or can't do to fulfill his promise to his people to keep you and to bring you home to glory if your faith is in his son. Pray with me. Lord, I pray that as you engage our hearts with the wonder and the truth and the beauty and the glory of who you are, that you would make us a humble people when it comes to questions of whether the earth could possibly stand still in its rotation. That you would make us humble people who recognize that there's a flaw in our thinking if we are doubting that you can do miraculous things and yet acknowledging that we believe that you spoke everything that is into existence by the word of your power. Lord, would you meet us in those places where we are trying to cover our shame and unsure of where we stand with you? Lord, would you meet us in that place and would you reassure us that you are faithful through all generations? Lord, I pray for those here in this place who have never acknowledged their brokenness or their need of you, that you would engage their hearts, that they would come to an understanding from you that they need you and that they would find comfort and rest for their souls in Christ. Father, thank you for this time that you've given us to study this story and your word of you making good on a promise that is hundreds of years old. Would you make us patient people then as we wait on you to fulfill promises that you have spoken over us? Lord, we thank you for the liberty that we find in the gospel of knowing that where we stand with you is that we are beloved sons and daughters when our faith is in your son. And Lord, would you cause that to be so real in our hearts that it overrides the shame. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray and for your glory. Amen.